0: Hey everybody, this is Nick Sorantos, Editor-in-Chief, Host, and Grand Puba of Chicago Podcast Network. Joined in studio, such as it is, by Andy Zemanidis, the Director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council. And uh, he's here today. We're going to do our Around the World in 30 minutes or so. Eh, a little bit. And uh, get into some topics today, we're going to hit up on Cyprus, the Iran deal, and what it's doing with oil prices, and then kind of look ahead to the week that's coming. So, let's get started on the topic that you love, Andy. By which I mean, one that makes you sad. But uh, let's talk about Cyprus. The World Economic Forum was last week. We kind of previewed it a little bit, and apparently Cyprus was a major point of discussion. What uh, happened at the WEF that you know of so far?
1: So there was a lot of positive rhetoric there, a lot of sideline meetings. Vice President Biden met with President Anasasiadis of Cyprus, as well as had a smaller off-campus meeting with the Turkish Cypriot community leader, Mustafa Akinci. Uh The UN Secretary General met with both of them. They made a joint appearance before the entire forum uh, making an appeal for the elites, both political and business elites of, of, of the world, to help uh, seize this historic opportunity for peace and fund it because it's going to cost money to reunify Cyprus. Uh, there was a follow-up meeting, um, by Vice President Biden with the Prime Minister of Greece at Davos as well, uh, that included Cyprus, and then he proceeded, Vice President Biden and the U.S. delegation, proceeded to go to Turkey, where he met with Prime Minister Ahmet Davutoglu and also pressed him on Cyprus. So, clearly, uh, it was a front and center issue uh, last
0: week. Yeah, I was reading about this a little bit and one of the things you mentioned in the article that you wrote for the Huffington Post and it was referenced in a lot of the other stuff I, I read there was a plan in 2004 that's very controversial and uh, was going to be put into action and then as I understand just was never enacted due to people voting no on it what was that plan and why didn't that one work? So that
1: plan came to a vote basically 30 years after the occupation of Cyprus. It was called the Anand plan because it, the, the the kind of main mover on it was the then UN Se- Secretary General Kofi Annan. Uh, that failed resoundingly. got a 75% no vote uh, by Greek Cypriots. Uh, even 35% of Turkish Cypriots voted no. So uh, the problems with that plan uh, were several. It took a, a a functioning democracy, a functioning state, that it became an EU state and, and turned it into something worse than Bosnia. And Bosnia is falling apart. Uh, here in the U.S., we because that was a major victory of U.S. foreign policy in the 1990s, we still say, hey, man, we did a great job on Bosnia, and nobody pays attention that for the last six years we've completely washed our hands, and now it, it, it's coming apart. But the Annaplan plan said we're basing this plan on the Bosnian Federation. So, problem number one, you know, you you took things like uh, the issue of property. There were a lot of uh, Greek Cypriots who were their property was taken away. It's still in occupied Cyprus. But now there's Turkish settlers living in there, Turkish Cypriots. And uh, the non-plan provided that someone who was dispossessed of their property could not get it back. And on top of it, If they were to be compensated, they'd be compensated by their own government. So Greek Cypriots were to to compensate themselves for the the property that Turkey took from them. But finally, the biggest issue, the biggest by far issue, I told you 75% of people voted no, 75% of that 75% listed security as their number one issue. So the Annan plan did not give a clear guarantee of Turkish occupation forces. There's forty thousand troops in that island, Turkish occupation forces. Think about it. That was bigger. That was more than the size of the the surge troops we had in Afghanistan. In in an area that that, you know, Cyprus doesn't have an air force, doesn't have a navy, has a coast guard and a national guard. So uh, there was no guarantee that those troops were going to leave when they said they were going to leave there was also a provision that explicitly allowed them to a, a certain a few hundred to stay there permanently and it gave turkey these right to intervene in cyprus's politics so basically the annan plan formalized the the 30 then 30 now 41 years of occupation
0: is it Ron, that the way you describe that plan all i can think of is lando calrissian in cloud city Like perhaps I'll leave a garrison here, Mister Calrissian. I mean, like that—it has that feel. I'm trying yeah, to be, and, you know, I, like, and I
1: actually think Turkey has a lot of that evil empire feel too. And well, er, Erdogan, you, I was, I, Erdogan is clearly Emperor Palpatine. Well, I was going to
0: ask you about that because in in everything that you you know since you and I've started doing the show, I've been trying to read as much as I can about Cyprus and, and really educate myself on the issue. It's not an issue that a lot of Americans really know about, and and I'm I'm as guilty as that as anybody else. So I, I think it's important to kind of, a little bit more, we've done it uh, once before, but to kind of, so in 1974, the Turks went to the island of Cyprus and basically took British over, half to over the, 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 hold on ladies and gentlemen, in that, that was CNN decided to start talking to us through the, oh, an ad. But in 1974, they... They came there, and as I understand it, put just a bunch of troops onto the island after it had been disputed for, I guess, thousands of years between Greeks and... No, no. Okay, okay. Okay.
1: Okay. So, um, Cyprus, you know, there's a great book about Cyprus, Christopher Hitchens wrote it, uh, probably the most appropriately titled book ever, called Hostage to History, Cyprus from the Ottomans to Kissinger. Cyprus, if you... Look at it where it isn't a map, and that's something that Americans we should be doing because it's. A, we're talking about it's in the Eastern Mediterranean. Syria is falling apart. You know, Lebanon may be falling apart, but Cyprus is just a half-hour speedboat ride away from Lebanon. It's it's also a speedboat or just a regular boat ride to Syria. Uh, it's close to Israel. In fact. You know, it says that Cyprus brings the EU forty-five minutes away from Tel Aviv. This is one of the reasons that that one of the uh, most popular places for Jewish civil weddings, because in Israel, when you get married, you have to get an Orthodox wedding. Is Cyprus? plain loads of Israelis come to Cyprus uh, to get married. So that's how close Cyprus is uh, to all these these places that you read about every day in the news. Uh, it had been occupied or owned by the Templars, by Richard the Lionheart. Richard the Lionheart actually got married in Cyprus. The Ottomans, the Venetians, the British. I mean, we could go back to antiquity. The Egyptians, the Phoenicians, Alexander the Great, the Byzantines. So every major empire or country that came into that region owned Cyprus at one point. Uh, we get to the late 1800s where the Ottoman Empire owned Cyprus, then the British took it from it. It became a British colony for about 80 years, uh, which would also explains the difference between Cyprus and, and Greece, for example. Greece went straight from Ottoman rule to Greek rule. Cyprus had that 80 year interlude of British rule. and. During the post-colonial, post-World War II period, Cyprus, like India, like Israel and the Palestinian areas, revolted against the British colonial powers. Um, and the British, doing what the British were famous for, divide and rule, they started using the minority, Turkish Cypriots, against the majority. So the Greek Cypriots were 80% of the island, and the Turkish Cypriots were 20, the security forces under the British were exactly the opposite uh, uh, ratio. And that began a little period of bicommunal uh, tension. Cyprus became independent in 1960, even though the revolt was originally for independent w- uh, union with Greece, but it became independent in 1960. Uh, Britain and others had imposed kind of an unworkable Constitution and, and government on Cyprus. Uh, early in the 60s, a period of intercommunal violence, and this is something people got to be uh, honest about. There, there were Greek Cypriot right wing paramilitary gangs that did bad things to Turkish Cypriots, uh, uh, and Turkish Cypriot paramilitary gangs that reciprocated. Uh, and that's when the UN started getting more involved in Cyprus. Um, we fast forward to the 1970s, uh, and at that point, Cyprus was also in the Non-Aligned Movement, so that was not very popular with the CIA. Uh, the, there was a dictatorship in Greece that was backed by the CIA. President Clinton, then, you know, in the, in the late 90s, apologized for that involvement. They decided to overthrow the government of Cyprus. The government of Cyprus was overthrown on July 15, 1974. And the original Republic of Cyprus, or the Republic of Cyprus originally had three guarantor powers. Uh, We're talking about a country that was established post-World War II, post-colonial period, so you had three powers, Greece, Turkey, and England, uh, who guaranteed the independence and sovereignty of Cyprus. So Greece wasn't going to go step in to to reinstall the government. They're the ones that overthrew it. England wasn't going to step in and reinstall the government. They're the ones who told Greece to do it. So Turkey claimed its rights of guarantee and uh, and they say intervened in Cyprus. Now, had they landed in Cyprus and put the constitutional government back in and protected it, then it would have been an intervention, but that's not what they did. They went in there, they established a beachhead, and Another thing that people don't know about Cyprus is the invasion actually happened in two phases. There was a three-day period in July, then they went into peace talks, and during those peace talks, when an offer was put on the table, and the then-chief negotiator for Cyprus says, I have to take it back to my parliament, that wasn't, you know, democracy was no good for Turkey at that point, so they launched a second wave. It was called Attila II, and that's where you got a 37 percent occupied island you got 200,000 people which is one third of the population uh, become refugees you still to this day have 1500 people missing 41 years later people just asking for the remains of uh, of their children or their fathers you you have that missing you had uh 70% Seventy percent of the island economy disappear overnight because that was the richest part of Cyprus. It was also seventy percent of the coastline because they got the the Karpath Peninsula. So uh, this was uh, one of the the big battles of the Cold War. And you know when I heard President Obama say in. Uh, in in the State of the Union, well, you know, we got to change policy in Cuba to show that the Cold War is over. Well, that has to happen in Cyprus as well.
0: One of the issues of the deal is, you mentioned it for the 2004 deal, is compensation for property. The economic foreman and conversations that have been taking place, have the details of that been ironed out, or is that still the main sticking point, or is security still the main sticking point?
1: I think they're both, right? Uh, because one, when it comes to compensations who 's going to pay? this is why there are a lot of reasons that Cyprus should be solved this year. A lot you know, The stars are lining up you got you know you got two leaders who have a great personal chemistry you have Turkey has a lot of problems, a lot of problems in foreign policy. This should be the easiest one for them to solve. Uh, you have the natural gas equation in the eastern Mediterranean. If Cyprus isn't solved, that becomes a lot different, uh, a lot more difficult to to get to market. But there's one big reason that it's not getting solved. Nobody's being serious about demanding of Turkey uh, some concessions. So security is the number one issue. They haven't even opened that chapter. They haven't even talked about that. Um, they say, "Oh, that's the the last ten percent." I think it's a little more than ten percent, but that's a big, big, big ten percent. Um, but on property,
0: Well, no, that would be seventy percent of the problem. I mean, based on the on the voting, that's the problem.
1: Yeah, you know, as I, as I've told people, you know, we have a Clinton running for president right now, and if you remember the great motto of the 1992, 1990- election, it's the economy stupid, and in the case of Cyprus, it's the occupation stupid. Now, there's a lot of diplomats, especially in our State Department, who'd like to pretend that Cyprus is Mm -hmm. merely something that Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots have to come to a solution. There is that part of the negotiation, yes. There is a portion a big portion of the negotiation is Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots deciding how they're going to come together, get over the past, and mm. live together. But then there's another part. There's Cyprus versus Turkey in, the, in that negotiation. And nobody has touched on the Cyprus versus Turkey part of the negotiation. So, you know, in, in my view, we're really nowhere but saying great. You know, we're in the setup phase. We're We're saying a lot of great things. You know, it's amazing to me that if we were at the World Economic Forum, right, the elites of the world, and by the way, the UN, the UN Special Envoy to Cyprus, Espen Bartheide, the former foreign minister to Norway, is the managing director of the World Economic Forum. And Cyprus was front and center at the World Economic Forum. We came out of Davos with not a single commitment from an international donor, not a single new confidence-building measure, not a single concession from Turkey. So we can cheerlead and say everything is great, and, and it's just like the off season on baseball, right? For for the Cubs fans listening, you know, actually better even for the Sox fans listening. Last last off season, the Sox won the off season and they finished in last place. Mm-hmm. So or, or second. Sorry, I went place. to
0: a sad mental place. Continue. Yeah. So you know,
1: speaking in positive tones. That doesn't mean anything until there's something on the table. As to your question on property, the structure on how to handle property has been settled on. What hasn't been settled? Who's going to pay? There are estimates out there that it could cost even thirty billion euros. Cyprus got a ten billion euro loan during the economic crisis. It so had to go in austerity. So, where's this thirty billion going to come from? These are very important questions that nobody's nobody's uh, gotten to yet.
0: Well, okay, you, you mentioned that no one's gotten to these questions. The, the other question I would have for you is you've mentioned a couple different, you know, uh, I, Cypriotic leaders. Uh, they have their own government, theoretically, right? Cyprus.
1: The Republic of Cyprus is an independent country.
0: Yes. Right, but that's the part that's not occupied by Turkey, correct? That's correct. Okay, so... How much influence do the Greek Cypriots have in negotiating their own fate? Do they have anything? Is there anything that they can negotiate with? Is there anything that the Turks want from them that yeah, they can give? Yeah, sure. So,
1: one, Turkish Cypriots, there's a lot that they want, right? They want, one, they want to come in you know, from this, they're in this twilight zone. Nobody recognizes them other than Turkey so it's as if they don't exist. So they can go from that state to a state where they are automatically EU citizens. They're trading with the world. They're part of a common market. They are, you know, they go from an economy that's very isolated, kind of stuck ask in that, the... So how, how
0: isolated is their economy? Very
1: isolated. Because they can't trade directly with the world. right? They're only recognized by, by one country. So any trade they do with the world is kind of through Turkey. They're getting no real... Uh, real foreign direct investment. They don't, you know, their banks are considered risky and money laundering centers and all and, and all the rest. So you go from kind of a closed economy, not a totally closed economy, but a mostly closed economy, to a very open economy that's automatically a member of the EU. I,
0: I've, I read somewhere that there's talks of a pipeline running from Cyprus to Turkey what What is the purpose of that pipeline that you know of, and is that something that's realistically going to happen?
1: So the eastern Mediterranean in the last five years has been the site of the the home of major new natural gas discoveries.
0: S- similar here with the fracking and the...
1: Yeah, actually it's more deep water drilling. Okay. Right? It's deep water drilling like Louisiana, but it's gas, not oil right now. So... Um, the uh, the majority of these discoveries have been Israel, Cyprus, and Egypt. Uh, Turkey is a major energy-consuming state, and uh, they they need uh, several different sources. Right? You know, there are problems with Russia right now. They could get shut down uh, from Russian gas. Um, so they. Turkey wants to be an energy hub. They need to buy these. Uh, Israel doesn't want its gas going only to Egypt. They uh, so there are all kinds of potential delivery mechanisms in play. There's, but uh, to have the potential of going to Turkey, uh, a, a pipeline to Turkey the Cyprus problem has to be, has to
0: be solved well, maybe that actually in the in the long run is is that one of the reasons you call this the perfect time to solve this because if they want that pipeline so badly that
1: yeah it I, is i mean the timing is great if they want that pipeline now this is the time they clearly want as we've seen in their negotiations over the refugee crisis they clearly want to get their EU relationship uh, back on track, if not full membership, some type of special relationship. Cyprus is an EU member. you know. They'll veto anything. <laughs> You're occupying me, we're not giving you anything. So, you know, this, this is a time that, the, with the world economy in a very volatile state, with us raising interest rates, and Turkey's economic growth was very much based on borrowing cheap dollars, so the dollar is getting more expensive... Turkey's got to start worrying about its, uh, its economy, and the Cyprus uh, resolving and ending their occupation of Cyprus helps them on the EU front, on the energy front.
0: Before we get off this topic, any place uh, on the Internet people can go to educate themselves or find information on how they can help with this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They can go to our website at www.hellenicleaders.com. That gives them briefings, um uh, on Cyprus, a lot of action, and then they can go to our it's news aggregator. It's one of your title
0: subjects, right? It's, like it's one of our
1: title subjects. And they can go to our news aggregator, which is GreekCurrent.com, and they get up to, up to the hour news. Okay.
0: Uh, we're running a little bit out of time here, and I wanted, you wanted to get to another issue, which is how the Iranian nuclear deal is affecting oil prices. And due to the lifting of certain economic sanctions, they're now able to re-enter the global market as a producer of oil. And a lot of people are concerned that the oil prices are going to drop because if Iran wants to, they can flood the market with a lot of oil. Is that something that you see having an implication as far as ISIS is concerned as well? And from what I've seen, the the rumor is that they're not going to do it at first, but at some point in the next year to two years expect something in the neighborhood of 500,000 barrels of oil from Iran. I think they said uh, yearly, right? Yeah. So what long-term, outside of just the prices of oil... Not
1: daily, I
0: think. Is it daily? Okay. Out of that... What are the long-term ramifications for the rest of the region if that starts to happen? Well,
1: so, you, you know, part of the, the price staying down is OPEC is, is not uh, limiting its quota. Uh, OPEC is dominated by Saudi and its allies. And, you know, there's the thought out there that they want to keep it down to, to keep investment from going into Iran. Right? Because it's expensive. To rebuild that infrastructure, and you want to get a certain uh, level of uh, of profit.
0: Is, is this another field where the the strained relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran is just
1: yeah, played out
0: even more? Absolutely.
1: Okay. You know, the Saudis. You know, I mean, because they hate each they, other. They could, they could make the Iranian deal fall apart because you know there are elements, there are hardliners in Iran. That want this deal to fall apart. That they'd rather have, that their idea, their belief is that if we have nuclear weapons, people will give us whatever we want anyway. So, and that's the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard. Uh, there, there are some people who believe that unless Rouhani, uh, the president who's considered a martyr in, in Iran, is able to show some real economic benefit right away for this deal that the deal will fall apart. And that's why, you know, look, implementation day was just this past week, and, you know, people pointed to some significant measures of progress. Iran dismantled two-thirds of its centrifuges, right? Now, they still have thousands, but two-thirds. They shipped out 25,000 pounds of enriched uranium out of the country. Um, They had this heavy water reactor reactor, that was its source of weapons-grade plutonium. They poured concrete in it to make sure it couldn't uh, produce that. Um, and they've given, so far, the international inspectors unprecedented access. So that's the good news. But at the end of this, they're getting $100 billion in assets lifted, and they're getting access back to the world economy. And as we saw today, China, the Chinese were in Iran striking all kinds of deals. The bad news is, they're still testing ballistic missiles. They still have thousands of centrifuges. They're still lying to the inspectors about what their program was producing, their nuclear program, and w- people just let it slide. You know, th- they were completely denying and lying about the military aspects of the program, and so. The, the real danger here is how far are they going to keep testing our resolve now when they get the hundred billion and they're into the oil markets and China has these these deals you know, we've been promised oh snapback sanctions can happen well, can they once everybody starts investing in there, are snapback sanctions really going to come, or are they just going to test the limits of this deal little by little and frankly. I think the Saudis and some of the Sunnis are more worried about that than we are, and that's why they're going to try to make sure uh, that Iran cannot become extremely wealthy early on, cannot fully realize uh, the benefits of an open economy, because they think Iran's play is for regional hegemony, and that's what they want to block.
0: So basically, from what you're saying, the United States has made a deal, where both sides of the deal are trying to screw each other over in the long—I mean, because what you're saying is like the the local hardliners in Iran want the deal to fail because it allows them to push the hard line, and internationally they're afraid of what happens if Iran grows too quickly, so they're creating the conditions that would allow the hardliners to come back against the deal.
1: Yeah, I mean yeah. the Saudis. Nice the catch, Saudis are. Yeah. That's
0: a nice catch twenty-two that we've. Yeah, yeah.
1: and now you know and in fairness you know the the the, the us and the european diplomats and the russians who worked on this said you know the most pressing part of the deal was n- n- the nuclear weapons that they were a couple months away from breakout capability and let's push it back right uh, they wanted to take each each part so they push it back and they say hey at best they have a one year breakout capability um, you know, I, I didn't see the deal that way. I I saw the most pressing thing: Iran using whatever it could to try to get regional hegemony. But that's fine. You know, it's a legitimate point of view that we had to push the nukes. You know, the nuclear breakout time as far back as we could. We needed to, to get the the world on the same page. But now, if that consensus starts getting broken, you know, I don't. I am not convinced that the snapback option is, uh, and rebuilding that consensus is uh, as automatic as,
0: as people. Well, no, think. once 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 everyone's got money in the game, people aren't just going to be willing to, to to shut it down.
1: Yeah, so, so that makes sense, you know. And
0: um, so again, we
1: won't know for you know fifteen years
0: what really is what's gonna
1: really going to happen here.
0: All right, so that's another issue that you, know you can find out about if you want to look into it, Iran, and on the oil deal. Right, looking ahead to the next week, it's, it's coming up on the five-year anniversary of the Arab Spring in Egypt, and what people like myself, a guy who lives on the Internet, consider one of the great victories of modern communication. Uh, and there have been several articles written about how the current crackdown in not only Egypt but in the entire Middle East region uh, is doing their best to limit free access to the communication to shut it all down. But we're five years out. Do you look at it in a hopeful manner as to what happened in Egypt or does that or, or is that in a way a precursor to what ISIS is now doing with with social media?
1: Well, I would take the social media out of it. Social media was the the main method of communication and every time there's a new method of communication if you remember the Iranian revolution in 79
0: I do not, I was uh, not born
1: some people may but what they'll, what they'll know about that that was also technologically advanced because Ayatollah Khomeini was recording things on cassette and sending them in so there will always be a form of communication the real disappointing thing with the Arab Spring and with largely with protest movements here I can talk about Occupy Wall Street, I could talk about Black Lives Matter, I could go on and on and on. It's one thing to protest, it's another thing to govern. You can't protest, get a resignation of somebody, and declare victory. You have to have the day after. And this is why the, this is why the Tea Party movement is much more powerful than any of the protest movements on the left. Any of them, it's not oh, even Oh, you're close. absolutely correct, yes. So, uh, the real problem with the Arab Spring was that it was the real it was the middle class it was the disenfranchised middle class. it was the intellectuals, it was the secularists, it was the students. they got up, they overthrew the regime but then they could not organize. They did not organize. That's why I'm not that impressed with the social media. The social media brought a lot of attention right. to it but then they didn't know how to use it. they didn't use it to organize. And and into that void stepped in the Muslim Brotherhood, which by the way had nothing to do with Tahrir Square or the Arab Spring. The Muslim Brotherhood saw an uh, opportunity to win an election, they won the election. They won the election and then they cracked down they cracked down on many of the very uh, movements that and got the them in there who, in the first place who who, who brought Mubarak down. And then as a result, we had another coup, Sisi, and we can argue about, you know, whether it was a coup, and people can talk about it backsliding, but it is notable that a lot of the Arab Spring uh, elements of Egypt, the secularists, the Christians, they backed Sisi. So uh, it's... It's something, you know, this has been a discussion for a long time of how you get to democracy. You have to have civil society. We should be investing in that. We should not be cutting off uh, the Middle East equivalent or the Latin American equivalent of radio-free Europe. We should be doing more student exchanges, uh, more cultural exchanges. Uh, The Internet's not going to bring democracy to the Middle East. It's as likely, as you pointed out, to bring terror as it is to, to bring democracy. And if, if we don't start investing in people and civil society, uh, we're not going to go anywhere.
0: I'd like to come back to this topic next week uh, and talk about it a little bit more, because there's a lot of discussion That's we had right. about the power of the internet and where it's going. Uh,
1: and then we'll also next week already have some results from, you know, presidential primaries. So Yeah,
0: that'll be fun. We can talk about, you know, Never mind. Uh, I don't want to even get started. But thanks so much, Andy, for coming in today, man. I love it. Thank you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this has been uh, Around the World in 30 Minutes or so. I'm Nick Serranos. That was Andy Zemanides, the Executive Director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council. Uh, We will be back next week talking about more foreign policy issues as they relate, well, to... Generally, him and I, and what we want to talk about. Other than that, ladies and gentlemen, find us on Facebook, Chicago Podcast Network. You can find us on Twitter under Chicago Podcast One and email us, Chicago Network at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. We out.